Welcome to Anything Goes, the best geek and pop culture podcast broadcasting from Long Island, New York. I'm your host, Timothy Rooney. And much like, uh, last month, I did an uh, interview with Oliver Harper, on, who is a YouTube creator. And if anybody who's followed his work knows that a few of his friends, Duncan Casey and Richard Jackson, have appeared on many of his episodes, whether it be commentaries or other reviews of new movies coming out and today i actually i came up with this topic to see if oliver was able to uh, join in on this podcast but he, knowing him he's very busy and i asked richard and he is definitely down for it richard say hello to everybody who's listening to this podcast good afternoon or good morning where you are tim but yeah. um, we're not live i suppose yeah it's almost <laughs> afternoon here so we could we, we could go into the afternoon <laughs> and the topic of, of today's podcast is talking about when I was watching uh, Fred Decker's Night of the Creeps and how that movie is a love letter to B-movies and things of his childhood. I started thinking about us being obsessed with nostalgia, whether it be the 80s, obsessed with the 50s, and now that we're obsessed with the 80s and whatever mm. culture that is involved. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to be discussing and dissecting why we're obsessed with nostalgia. <laughs> Now, Richard, you said when we when I messaged you that you've had been thinking about this for a long time. When did you start thinking about this idea, or had this idea come to you? Um, it's been probably then for a while because I mean, I've, I've, it's something that I remember very much from being a kid myself. In that everybody seemed to be obsessed, you know, with the nineteen fifties because all our favorite movies were Back to the Future and you know Gremlins, particularly yeah, Joe Dante and Zemeckis and Spielberg as well. Um, and even the music made a comeback um, when I was a kid. There was a thing called Jive Bunny, which I don't know if you had in the States, but it's where some kind of anonymous DJ mixed together loads of kind of 50s rock and roll into like a medley, and it got released as a single and like came to number one here with a cartoon rabbit as like the mascot. <laughs> it was just, yeah, I know. You've been looking to YouTube, it's as crap as it sounds. So recently, just kind of rewatching Joe Dante movies and stuff, I've kind of been a bit interested because I think there's a very interesting, you know, those who kind of grew up at the end of the 50s, 30 years later in the 80s, they made, got into position to make movies and they made them about the 50s. And then those who were born in the 80s, 30 years later, to make movies. And then um, history's repeated itself in a way. And I think in between that, we had, you know, a period of revisiting the 60s and 70s as well. Um, it just seems that the the eighties thing in particular at the moment is really stuck and it kind of won't go away <laughs> for some reason, which uh, I find very interesting. Yeah, it's one of those weird things that it's just like, like wh whenever you're a kid, you always want to can't wait to be a grown up and you can do your own things. And as soon as you hit that moment, like most things, you have a little bit of an epiphany. Like, I wish I had my childhood back. And then, and, and then you have those moments like, oh, you rewatch old cartoons or old movies, and then you discover your friends. Like, like you kind of keep sometimes, at least for me, like I like, eh, I still like SpongeBob and stuff like that. And I kind of kept things like that to myself. And then 
blurted out in conversation that I, I still like it. And you're like, oh, I like that too. And you can, you and your friends go on a nostalgic ride with that and just quoting it and et cetera. I mean, even to the point, once when I was up at school, it was a Friday after, yeah, it was a yeah, Friday afternoon. And my friends and I, we, were, we had nothing else to do that day. So we ended up watching TV, uh, even though it was a beautiful day outside because we were bums like that. Uh, <laughs> we were scrolling through channels and Nickelodeon had like a, um, a SpongeBob marathon. And we looked at the menu for what was being served in the dining hall that night. And it was crap. So we we're just like, let's, and we couldn't agree. So like, let's order something, but we couldn't agree on that. So we all individually order our own things from the delivery services. So somebody had Chinese food, somebody had calzones, somebody had Domino's. And my sister, my sister texts me like, so what are you doing? I explained the situation. And I'm like, no, I am not stoned right now. None of us are. We're just going on this ride right now. And she's like, I, I, don't, I don't know what to say about that. And I'm like, I'm just going to end this conversation now. And with like that, I mean, re- like most recent thing that I saw that was a really like throwback is actually a video that you left on Oliver's uh, Facebook pages when somebody edited all the nightclub scenes and famous movies together. And I'm like, yes, yeah. And that seems like an example is a love letter to things of the eighties. And I'm just curious, like, I'm like, I guess for some people, let's get a little bit of a history. Now end of the 1960s, the studio system is in the toilet and they decide that there's a few people coming out of things called film schools and they're making interesting movies that people want to go see. So they decide to produce and distribute technically independent movies. And yet, and they make box, and they're being produced by like 20th Century Fox, Warner Brothers, and etc. So movies like Bonnie and Clyde, The French Connection, The Exorcist, mm-hmm. um, Mean Streets, and Clue, things that like technically you, you could argue they're independent movies, yet they're being financed through studios. Movies like Jaws and Star Wars started to reinstate the power of yeah. what the studio was. Then they were produced in an independent fashion, weren't they? I mean, because they were produced by the studios, but they were done with kind of young directors relatively cheaply. Yes. I mean, that thing with the post-crash movies, they, they uh, owing to the kind of huge success of the past that they no longer had, uh, you know, people didn't want to go and see a fucking three-hour-long musical projected on a screen the size of seven buses. You know, <laughs> it, it was just sustainable. So you, you would go and make Dirty Harry or whatever instead mm. to kind of get that back. So they kind of favoured, for a brief, wonderful period, they favoured art over industry, it seemed, even though the bottom line's always business. Yeah. I mean, um, oh, go on. Um, it seems like like almost um, a period of like twelve years where like from like you can argue from nineteen sixty eight to nineteen eighty with like the, the releases of like Heaven's Gate, which was like it bankrupted studios. United Artists like almost went out. If they did go under, I'm not too sure. And then the studios like, all right, enough of the shenanigans. We're back in control. And then there's a few select filmmakers who had who said like. Yeah, we'll play by the studio rules. However, we're still going to sneak in what we what we love about it. Now, like you mentioned Gremlins and like Back to the Future. When did you first see uh, Gremlins? Let's start that. Let's start with that. Um, those would have been the type of things because I, I told you, Tim. Just uh, just for context. Twenty three. Twenty three. Good yes. lord, young man. I'm thirty one. <laughs> I think I Okay, so. Um, not exactly when they came out. I saw Gremlins 2 when it came out, kind of in the theatre. Um, Gremlins, I would have seen when it first came on British TV. And back in those days, you'd have to wait a few years before, you know, if you wanted something on British TV, you'd wait about four or five years. So I guess I saw Gremlins kind of late 80s, early 90s, around that kind of time. So when it kind of got here on TV, 
And again, when every, pop culture seems to be really in the grip of that kind of 50s, 60s nostalgia. Mm-hmm. And there'd be one of those ones that either your mum and dad would get from the video shop and put on, you know, stick it on in front of you and bugger off and leave <laughs> you to watch it. Or it would be on at Christmas and it'd be a big deal and all the kids at school would watch it and you'd go and talk about it and et cetera. Um, yeah, so kind of it, probably in the late 80s, I would have thought. And uh, that's, I assume it had a huge impact on your life along with like movies like Back to the Future. Oh, yeah. It's one of those, you know, I mean, it's one of those ones that people still talk about. And I, I, I went to a digital presentation of it at a local cinema, you know, a year or two ago. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows Gremlins. It's a huge deal. All the kids loved it. You'd always talk about Gremlins. You'd play Gremlins, run around, acting out Gremlins, remember a bit some Gremlins. Right. And Gremlins 2 came out, everyone crazy for that. You know, really, really big deal. And it's left, you know, you can't, you can walk into any kind of geek oriented shop even in this country in t-shirts dolls you know there's a band called mogwai a scottish band called mogwai that's awesome. um yeah i mean there's also a, a really really <laughs> there's a really really bad british pop band called mcfly as well <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's not all positive then. <laughs> but yeah you know they, they 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 are really big deals here and i i it's People of a certain age, the nostalgia for them is immense. You know, you can walk down the street in most towns and you'll see someone in a Back to the Future t-shirt. Or someone will say, you know, you'll do something dumb and someone will still say, McFly, butthead, or, or whatever. People <laughs> um, quote it. You know, it's really just so in the fabric of people of a certain age. Perhaps younger, I like to think, but certainly my generation is one of the, you know, Gremlins is one of the big hang-up movies that we just all know. Right. And sidebar, do you think Gremlins 2 doesn't get the love it deserves? I mean, it doesn't get the love that it, it requires because I, I think Gremlins 2 is a really good sequel. I honestly think that Gremlins 2 is genuinely one of the most wonderful films ever made. I think yeah. it's incredible. Brilliant, brilliant movie, and I don't think people were quite ready for it. Um, I mean, I've got uh, my the guy I live with, I like, share a house with a friend, um, mm-hmm. He was like, oh, yeah, we've got to get Gremlins 2 because I don't own it. And I was like, yeah, get Gremlins 2. Got Gremlins 2, watched it one Saturday because neither of us were, you know, we were both free. Next Saturday night, we're at home having a couple of beers. You know, seven days later, and he, goes, he just goes to me, do you want Gremlins 2 again? I just went, yep. I'll tell you why, it was because Christopher Lee passed away. That was the main motive. But we were like, oh, well, I know it's not a big part, but it's great when Christopher Lee turns up in Gremlins 2. We should watch Gremlins 2. Um, yeah, Gremlins is an incredible movie. Anyone who says otherwise is wrong, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. I mean, there's like I don't think a moment goes by in that movie that was not a joke, whether it be visual or dialogue oriented. I think one of my favorite moments is when they give one uh, the smart Gremlin gives the one of the Gremlins the right to, uh, the like DNA to fly, and he flies to the window and he leaves the Batman logo in the, the wall as he, as he flies out. <laughs> <laughs> and then Chris- yeah, it's completely sumptuous it's every it's full of gags it's beautiful sorry carry on and, it's, and then you have like Slayer playing in the background when Spike drinks like the spider venom and stuff like that and he, he mutates and I'm like this is perfect like how how did people not like this when this came out I don't know I mean because it, like, it made money but it didn't make as much money as the first one but I think people weren't expecting that I guess they wanted another small town in the same situation to happen again I guess I don't know what mm. I don't know what you could have done with that. 
Um, it's, you know, it's a sequel about sequels. That's kind of the joke, isn't it? It's a sequel about sequels. And Joe Dante didn't want to do it, and they approached other people to do it, and they eventually got him on board on the proviso that he could do whatever he wanted with it. Right. He wanted complete credit. And he always felt that the concept of doing another Gremlins was, was bankrupt. You know, it's like, I'm not just going to do a stupid sequel for the sake of it. But then when they, he said, I'll do whatever I want, he just kind of clearly went, hold on, I'll do a stupid sequel for the bit. And I'm going to turn it all the way up to 11 and just do all the stupid sequel shit. I'm going to self-reference. I'm going to just go completely out of control. I'm going to put Looney Tunes in it. I'm going to get Hulk Hogan. I can get Christopher Lee. Just throws everything in, completely self-aware. Because the first one, whilst it's kind of like, you know, it's very arch. It's not as self-aware as the second one. The second one is complete kind of tongue-in-cheek, winks at you the, all the way through, all these kind of crazy little silly things. Because he just had fun. He just went, oh, I'm going to go nuts. I'm going to take the piss out of Donald Trump. We're going to have this big uh, skyscraper setting. We're going to do all this crazy, crazy stuff. And it works brilliantly. Because it, 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 it in itself is a sequel about sequels. He's kind of like, you want me to pump out a ridiculous crash sequel? All right, I will. Here you go. Give me the money. I'm just going to go nuts. Um, which he does, and it's, I think I find that infectious when you watch it. You can see how much fun's being had, and you kind of get to share it a little bit. And, um, uh, it's also the like like it's like you're saying like sequel about sequels, and they take the most serious moment of the first one about Phoebe Cates talking about the like like <laughs> situation and be able to make a joke out of it. And it's like it's just one of those things that like Phoebe Cates is now known for two big things from the 80s. One is, like, she showed her top off, she took her top off in, like, Fast Times Ridgemont High, which, like, changed men's lives forever, but also haunted children <laughs> with this recount of, like, her father dying in the first movie, and just like, oh, oh, you played the gamut right there, that you were part of two benchmarks of 80s culture right there. Um, yeah, she should be very proud. <laughs> uh, um, now, why do you think, I mean... Why do you think the stu- like even though the like the studios that came back into power in the 1980s, why do you think the studios allowed Zemeckis and Dante to do this? And then we'll go into how it worked and why some of it may not work today. And then then we'll go into more examples of how it has worked today. Hmm. Hmm. Um. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you you have that period of re- recovery, really. And I think they the studios, particularly in the 80s were able to become emboldened, I think really in the wake of Star Wars and Jaws, because that's when they realised, oh no, we can do a three-hour musical that we project on the side of seven buses or whatever, <laughs> you know, we can do these spectacles again and these kind of big budget, high concept things, and I don't know if just, it's the emergent talent, isn't it? You talked about all the people who went to, you know, film school, so John Carpenter and George Lucas and Spielberg and everything, and the whole kind of uh, brain trust at Disney, the people that emerged from that that went on to end up doing Pixar, I just think they were of a certain age. And I, you know, I think it would be very easy for them to pitch a movie like Gremlins and say, oh, it's uh, this kind of high concept horror romp set in a small town. And the studio would take it on that basis. They probably wouldn't say, we're going to do a kind of ironic throwback to 50s B-movies. Mm. So I don't think that was as much of a draw. If you were to go to a studio now and say, I'm going to do an ironic 80s B-movie, they'd go, yeah, love it. Well, they love that. That's what the kids like. And just right. go for it. Whereas I think they were able to pitch just concepts, like big concepts, because Star Wars in itself is a throwback to kind of the, uh, you know, the serials, isn't it? Yeah, uh, Flash Gordon. Flash like Gordon and so, so on. 
So, you know, these are just people, I think, reliving these things, but it's not as, I would say kind of the stuff now that references the 80s is quite crass in the way it does it, whereas I think other things are quite subtle. I mean, Back to the Future is by no means a subtle return to the 1950s. No. It, it, they narratively, literally return to the 1950s, whereas something like Indiana Jones, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, that's a kind of spiritual return to the days of serials, um, but not so much a literal one. Right. So I just wonder if, yeah, these kind of these things were pitched as high concept blockbusters by people of a certain age that just happened to have that kind of died in the wall, and maybe the people you know calling the shots of the studios were of a similar age and also nostalgic because there's also that point after the crash where all your kind of old-school studio heads, you know, your big cigar-chomping kind of czars are fucking dying mm-hmm. and being replaced. In, like, in the dynasty they had at Fox, the Xanax, being replaced by sons and cousins and stuff that are just a bit younger. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was Daryl... I, I get mixed up with my Xanax at Fox, but um, it might have been Daryl Xanax who took over at Fox, and he's, he's the guy who really, really, really wanted Planet of the Apes to be made. Right. And he was kind of pop, newer blood. Someone's going to listen to this and go, like, you've got the wrong Zanuck, and, <laughs> and, and complain to you, Tim. I'm very sorry about that. It's okay. Um, Excuse me, but, you put the wrong per- you mentioned the wrong person. Like, oh, fuck off, guy. <laughs> That's basically every podcast I'm on. I get something wrong every time. I've bought internet, I put my hands up. But um, yeah, I think there's kind of a change of personnel behind the scenes as well. But I don't think they were expressly pitched as, like, this is a nostalgia project. Mm-hmm. It seems like they were able to, like, if they could pitch the poster and at least, a, like, a tagline with it, they could, like, all right. It seems like the studios would have, like I should be saying, like, have more faith in those who were responsible, that they didn't feel too trepidatious about, like, going, like, all right. As well as one thing I noticed is when I looked up Gremlins, Back to the Future, and, like, E.T., their budgets were relatively low. and. Mm. Like what was it like? And I did this, I did the nineteen eighties the monies during the the budget in the eighties, and I then I did the adjustment for inflation. Gremlins mm-hmm. was was about eleven million dollars in nineteen eighty four, which is roughly twenty four million dollars today. How many big movies are being released uh, theatrically worldwide that are under hundred million dollars anymore, I, I, and that are released worldwide? It's something that does not happen today, and I think it's something that is to take notice of because maybe that's the reason why they were able to get away with this kind of love letters and nostalgia while telling their own story. Do you agree? Yeah. In that you're saying that there was, they were taking basically it wasn't a gamble, you know, it was less money involved. So there was less to lose, I suppose. Yes. Um, I mean, I would say, I would say, however, you know, these days, um, obviously we've still got the big two of Fox and Warners sitting at the top. But we have a number of uh, smaller studios and people like Lionsgate and whatnot who do do the kind of $50 million movies, you know, and that's considered, they're not quite considered B movies, but they're sort of, you know, the next rung down every time they do Paranormal Activity or Mama or whatever. Mm. They kind of fit into that middle ground where you can be riskier. I think something like, because interestingly, um, Gremlins and Back to the Future as examples are, both universal. Yeah. So that's not one of like major, major ones, but they're still a big player. So they had the cash, um, but they also had, you know, <clears throat> Back to the Future. Uh, what's the town called in Back to the Future? I've forgotten. That's uh, Kendall, Hill, it? Hill Valley. Hill Valley. Hill Valley and King, is it Kingston Falls? 
in Gremlins. Yes. You know, that's the, that's the same town. It's the same set in the Universal Backlot. Um, huh. So really, they didn't have to build those. They already had those in hand, so it's not really an expense to build those sets. So the budget could be quite misleading on paper. Right. So I think they already have those assets in place. Interestingly enough, the cinema that blows up is the same cinema that Marty like drives the uh, uh, time machine towards at the end of Back to the Future One. That's just tr- that's just trivia. That's kind of what Ollie and I specialise in. Um, but I do. I wonder if that's you know because Universal do have all these big sets and these props and things that get reused. So I wonder you know what was already in place um, for them. I mean I know like the Gremlins themselves were really valuable puppets to the extent that they had to be locked up every night to stop someone from stealing them and things. Um, so I don't know. I mean I would say you know if you watch Gremlins and you watch Back to the Future. You know, sorry to keep talking about those two movies, but the first ones, yeah, they are quite low key and they feel like a bit cheap. Mm. You know, there's not really any. There are no huge stars in Back to the Future. No. I mean, Gremlins has what Corey Feldman and I don't know, maybe Dick Miller. Because <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> like he, like, he has like the most movies on his resume if you want to consider him a star at that point. Mm. I mean, yeah, I, but it's just like. Um, it was like I guess like you're saying like with the budget being so low like oh we can take we like you're saying we can take a gamble on somebody who's unknown and they're willing to risk it because we're saving so much cost here like 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 all right the studio will give you carte blanche to do things over here and that's why they're able to cast the people who are right for it not just stars at the time but yeah um, and again they're shooting in you know Universal's own back garden so they can have a constant watch on them. You know, I think also the um, most of the thing was shot on the studio backlot. The thing is another one. Obviously, that's directly a remake of uh, the Howard Hawks produced thing. Yeah, uh, thing, Planet. You know, um, I mean, a lot of it's <clears throat> directly nostalgia for those for those B movies, not just the period. Um, well, like I am going to bring up a few of the remakes from the fifth of of the eighties that remade fifties movies later on about. Different, different okay. views on them, and as well as a few other ideas that um, presented. And I think there's another reason why some of these movies were popular is that you gotta look at like uh, these movies being made in Hollywood. You gotta take a look at the political climate at the time. Not trying to get into much of politics or anything like that, but then mm-hmm. we have a cowboy in the White House. It's yeah. the generation, and like like national debt is going up, but like <laughs> you can write it off on your American Express card, and you can drive down your Porsche. I mean. Everything was excess at that time, so I feel like, hey, I'm I'm really good at what I do, and I love the things that I do. Let me make movies about things that I love, and that could probably be one of the reasons why I played into movies of nostalgia fueled like projects like this. Mm. Well, I'm I'm reasonably certain that, um, and uh, you know, this is going to sound like a joke, um, <clears throat> but I, I'm, I'm I'm only being kind of slightly facetious. I, I genuinely think a lot of the films we ended up seeing in the 80s and some of the ones we treasure now were the direct result of cocaine. I'm very I, I see that. Just kind of, you, the kind of uh, mad, coke-filled excess of that era. You know, I think that the, people were just kind of living these rock star lifestyles, particularly at studios. I mean, even something like The Warriors was just like, everyone was coked off their nuts. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so I can imagine sort of like, okay, I got an idea for a movie. It's about a kid who goes back in time with a DeLorean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, give him a hundred mil. And they just do it. 
<laughs> no one's like, wait, he does what in a what now? They're just sort of going, yeah, sounds good. Give him all the money. Give him all the money. It's like the next day when they're coming down, they're like, oh, what did we just <laughs> sign? What did we just green lit? <laughs> uh, I can't stay sober for this. And they just keep going. It's funny that you mentioned that because I used to have a big Scarface poster on my wall too. So I'm like, yeah, I can, I can see that now. I land up with your point there. They're all running around listening to push it to the limit, doing lines of strippers' back. You know what I mean? Green lighting police academy nine. <laughs> oh, we can still make money out of this. All right. <laughs> Send them to Moscow. It'll be great. <laughs> the joke that my friends and I, uh, my buddy Mike and I have is it's like when we, when we make fun of the wine scene specifically, like, oh, we need to greenlit another Hellraiser uh, sequel or <laughs> stuff like that. Like, yes, we need more Coke for the weekend. Let's greenlit another Hellraiser. <laughs> It'll keep us going. No worries. I need to buy a new boat. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then you have like movies like Wolf of Wall Street, which directly satirize the eighties, as well as like as well as Olive Stone's Wall of Wall Street, and it's just like, yeah, that's pretty much the time summed up right there. Yeah, you kind of nailed it, guys. Like you know, um, and I, well, I think it was if I remember, I was watching a documentary about the making of Scarface, and there was a screening of it, and Martin Scorsese was sitting in front of uh, the actress, and he turned around like. You know, this is a great movie, but Hollywood's going to hate. Hollywood's going to hate it because you're satirizing them. You're making fun of them. And Scarface was not was a okay success box office wise, but didn't leave an immediate cultural impact. And now, obviously, it has because it's a great satire of that time. But and that's the that's the double irony of Scarface. I think I genuinely think most of the people that like Scarface just completely missed the message. It's an anti-drug like, movie. Well, it's it's so ironic, and look what happens to Tony Montana. Yeah, people idolise him. Like that, I met loads of people when I went to do my when I did my degree. Mm-hmm. It'd be kind of like it'd be like, oh, what do you study? Oh, I study film. Oh, I like films, really. Yeah, I've seen Scarface fifty times, and it's like that is not the same as making film. And it's kind of like yeah, Tony Montana's because you know, in England you get these kind of like wannabe gangster geezers. And it's kind of like, yeah, well, Scarface, mate, he's fucking everything, he does all his coke, he's a fucking pooper, he owns it all. It's like, mate, he gets fucking killed at the end and, like, has a weird incest relationship with his sister. He's a monster and he dies as a result of his hubris. Did you just not watch the last ten minutes? It's kind of like, have you seen the movie Romper Stomper about the Nazis with Russell Crowe in Australia? I've heard of it, but I never got a chance to see it. Okay, spoilers, Tim. I'm afraid at the very end, like it turns out, it's told from the point of view point of view of the Nazis. Uh, the Nazis kind of all die, and the one guy who survives changes his ways. Mm. I remember meeting some racists once who loved Romper Stomper, and I was like, the end of the film is Russell Crowe getting stabbed in the neck with the hit the youth knife. That is not an endorsement of Nazism. <laughs> like, did you just wa- not watch the last ten minutes? Anyway, I, dig- I digress. I, I just, Scarface is a massively kind of uh, mis- misinterpreted movie for my money. Um, but that is very off- that is off topic, so feel free to edit this out. <laughs> no, no, I'm going to keep that in because I'm just imagining, like, like you said, you ran this racist. I'm just like, was he just going down a dark alley and just ran into these people and they were just happened to be talking about Rob Stomper? Um, I, live, uh, I live in East Anglia. There's not a lot happening around here. <laughs> like, you meet weird people sometimes. Um, or in their case, 
stupid people, which is not, they're not mutually exclusive. But uh, anyway. <laughs> back to the topic at hand. Uh, happiness, happiness, nostalgia. Um, huh. That, so, most of the 80s goes forward, and these films are successful. Now, there's another part of not just being like, let's lightly, subtly reference it, whether it be like, we love Frank Capra movies, we love old Hitchcock movies or something like that, like, that will sprinkle throughout our own movies. There was an an era of remakes that were done right in the 80s, three specifically that, that come to mind, all of them starting with the, like, all starting the, and whether it be The Thing, The Blob, or The Fly, all remakes of 50s classic movies to some people who grew up in that era and added their own spin to it. Why do you, like, other than like that, why do you think those were successful while other remakes that we have today that are trying to do the same thing but moves in the 80s, why do you think it worked then and why does it not work now? That's, it's a tough one. I mean, I think all of those, uh, perhaps with the exception of the blob, which I have seen but I don't know as intimately other two movies, they are very, uh, they are very vision and auteur-led interpretations of the old property. And uh, let's not forget that the thing <clears throat> opened opposite E.T. was a massive box office disaster and was destroyed by critics and didn't really have its day till about a decade later when people reappraised it. Roger Ebert gave it a hugely negative thumbs down review, which he's, you know, he's passed away now, but in later years rescinded and reissued a new review in praise of it. Mm. So actually the thing wasn't a success. It was a disaster at the time. It's the next generation that really took that on. The fly, I mean, you know, taking these on a case by case basis rather than addressing the overall um, situation. The Fly is a David Cronenberg movie and it has all the hallmarks of a David Cronenberg movie and he's taken that basic premise and filtered it through the Cronenberg filter and I think he's come off the back of the string of such things <clears throat> and then that comes out and it's kind of like, it's from Fox but it's got a kind of borderline art house sensibility owing to the fact that it's Cronenberg mm-hmm. um, and it has all the kind of thrills and spills of the original one, it has everything the Gorehounds want but it also has really good kind of questions of identity and, and, and layers of kind of meaning, subtext, metaphor. Um, the Blob is just crazy, dumb, silly, driving trash <laughs> that's good fun. You know what I mean? Like, no, I'm not, I've never been really, I don't think there's much analysis to be had of The Blob. Um, no, it's just fear, fear people in power. That's the only, like, the only, I guess, subtext of that movie, and it's not yeah. really subtle. It's got that kind of anti-authority vibe to it. And it's a fucking cool movie. The remake Blob is a cool, cool movie. Like, I'm... Um, I think it did... I think they did tap into that nostalgia. And these are successful examples because they turn the originals on their head. And they certainly... Um, you know, if we're talking about... <clears throat> one reason you remake something is to give... You can give the pretext that, well, we didn't have the effects technology to do this at the time. In the case of horror movies, when you remake a kind of B-horror movie from the 50s and 60s, is that they were still under the Hayes Code. Mm-hmm. So whatever they wanted to do, they couldn't. So the original thing, uh, and it is based on a Joseph, uh, on a, I can't remember his name, it's based on a short Joseph story. Joseph Campbell Jr., um, I think. Joseph Campbell, who goes there, right? Yeah. The, yeah, it's kind of a vegetable monster, and it's all very B-movie-ish. 
Nobody gets their arms bitten off by a rib cage. Nobody's head peels off and turns into a spider because you just couldn't show anything like that. So you can remake that concept and make it completely gruesome, outrageously kind of shocking and gory. So you can do things that they couldn't, not owing to the technology, but owing to the law. You know, they just couldn't do that kind of thing. And I don't think the popular sensibility was ready for it. So you can remake these things, go look at it now. It's completely violent. I mean, you know, I would say they're quote-unquote more realistic mm. we are discussing films about a space germ and a fly man so it's not <laughs> as realistic to you know here um but you know they show a more intimate portrait of what those situations would actually be like and in a really gory way and they they build on that nostalgia but they bring something new to the table whereas if you remake for example the thing now which they kind of did you've got nothing else to bring to it really or it doesn't seem that way so the kind of the irony of the the thing remake of John Carpenter is a Richard Hayley at the time, but is a, a deservedly adored classic, is that it was able to bring something new. Whereas the re-remake prequel thing that we got a few years ago doesn't have anything. You know, it, they, the, I, I'm not going to get into the production of that movie owing to the kind of uh, practical effects being cut out and stuff, which we all know about. Yeah. But there's nothing to add. You know, there's just new versions of someone's head stretching off or new versions of someone crawling around like a big spider or a new version of skin peeling away. There's nothing new there. Yeah, and going back to what you saying about the release coming out against E.T. Now, if I remember correctly, they're both released <clears> by Universal and E.T. was out for about two weeks by the time the thing came out. Now, E.T. was not expected to make that much, like, wasn't make, was expected to make that big of a splash. That's why M&M's turned down to have their products in there, and that's why they went to Reese's instead. Like, a lot of people didn't have faith in the movie. That's why it was, that's why uh, uh, Spielberg said, I can do it for this budget, and stuff like that. And then it's like, okay. Now, the money that they made within those two weeks, you think Universal would have been like, huh, the money that we've been putting into the thing and all the prints and advertisement, I think we could eat the cost if we push this back to October rather than let's try and have a movie tackling similar subject matter compete. One being like both movies I love and both are in like my favorite movies list. And it's like, but for different reasons. I mean, I don't like they probably, they probably, I guess this is just hindsight talking that they should have been like, you know what, this is probably not going to fare well against unless they thought, hey, it's variety. People like variety, and then it just happened to backfire on them. I don't know. I, I really don't understand the decision-making there on Universal's part mm-hmm. to release them next to each other. <laughs> We've got two alien movies. Just bring them out at the same time. <laughs> yeah, <that was> good. <laughs> um, I, I, it's it, the, the timing there is unfortunate and, and legendarily so. I mean, um, yeah, because they are so opposite. One is dark and bleak and cynical and mean, and the other one's like lovely and sweet and light. And to be fair, they're aimed at two completely different audiences. I mean, you've got one down at the kids' end of the scale, which the adults can watch if they want. Mm-hmm. The other one's at the adult end of the scale that the kids can't watch if they want. So, yeah, it's a bit dumb. I think they could have held off and tried to, uh, you know, release it later, like you say. But at the same time, you know, the critics hated it anyway. Yeah. Because they were were wrong. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It got mauled regardless. Um, So it's odd, yeah. And again, you know, E.T. is, 
it's kind of the inverse alien invasion movie. It's the nice alien story. Because, you know, it's a time when people are, they're still obsessed about being invaded by communists, but not as much. So, like, here's someone from outside of America who's nice. Mm. Which, you know, like, in the other kind of things, it was like, they've come from space, they've come to fucking kill us. It's like, here's the, here's the nice movie, and isn't it great when someone comes to visit and they don't want to kill you, and blah, blah, blah. And actually, we're the bad guys in this story, and everything else. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of one really optimistic movie versus one really bleak one, and it just... It's not, you know. it's not like, they're not just going to invade us and kill us, they're going to eviscerate us and take us over, too. It's almost like how, I guess you would say, like, it's almost like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, whether it be the 50s or the 70s version, where it's like, it's going to take us over and it's going to destroy us in the most vicious way possible. And it's like, huh, mm. lighthearted evisceration. <laughs> and I'm like, hmm, what do I want but to see? This that's, uh, that's very much about kind of uh, being that, you know, because uh, uh, I, I, I wrote a piece about... Um, the Don Siegel body snatchers and those involved, you know, they never directly said, Oh, it's meant to, it's not meant to be an allegory for communism. But when you watch it, it's all about people being drawn into a system in which they then have no agency or voice. This is very much feels like the allegory for, for, you know, a, a communist system. Do you think it was um, done subconsciously? No, I don't. I think, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think, you know, the script is what it is for the original one, <clears throat> and and it's based on uh, a serial a serialized short story that appeared in in a sci-fi magazine. Um, <clears throat> can't remember the name of the author. So I think, you know, when you get to the point where you're filming a reasonably adaptation, a reasonably uh, accurate adaptation of that source material, you're going to take any intention on. I mean, it is straight up a great alien invasion film, but it's clearly allegorical of kind of you know communism, really. It's kind of reds under the bed scare stuff. Yeah. We're going to draw you into this system whereby you have no agency, you have no belongings, you have no power. And you're, you're part of this kind of collectivized government. It's really achingly obvious. I would also say, um, coming in the late 1970s, so it's not quite up to scratch with what we're discussing today, the Philip Kaufman um, Body Snatchers is, again, one of the best B-movie remakes like it's, a, it's fantastic. It's a tremendous movie. It's, it's probably one of my favourite movies ever. And it's a really good, going back to your point, it's a really good post-crash film. It's a great example of a post-crash film. It's kind of made not particularly expensively. It's not massively spectacular. It's shot on the streets of San Francisco, so it's not in kind of elaborate sets. It's loaded location work. It's very low-key. Very much a post-crash movie. Um, and it repurposes that source material. I mean, you could argue that that seems less concerned with the obvious kind of uh, communism allegory, and it's less relevant in 1978, though that was still an ongoing situation. It's um, a bit more concerned about kind of the grotesquery of the process and the, and the, and the kind of body horror stuff. Um, but also a tremendous movie. And then there's the Abel Ferreira body snatches. This keeps coming back. And then we've had the... Uh, uh, the foul... Well, was it? Craig yeah. and... Which I've not seen because that just did not look like fun. <laughs> it looked just boring. Um, uh, so you know, body snatchers seems to be this persistent one. And am I right in thinking that in Gremlins they're watching body snatchers on the television at one point? I think so. I, yeah, because he, I think he's sitting in this room and he's watching on like they're coming. Like it's the famous moment where they're coming, they're coming. And Kevin McCarthy's like yelling into the screen, the camera at that point, and it's like I'm like. 
it's it's not a subtle like uh, foreshadowing of what's going to happen, but I it is a nice nod to what like I, as we've been saying the entire time, a nice nod to previous movies and how it's been being affected these new filmmakers at the time, and I, like it's weird. God played Cosmocarthy in uh, in a space, didn't he? He's the bad guy in a space. Yes, he is. Directly reused him, and I think elsewhere as well. Um, well, I think he did use him in another movie, but um, yeah, he, you know, he specifically puts him in there, and that in itself is basically Fantastic Voyage, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, another great. Did did I um? Did we talk about Joe Dante for a minute? Go ahead. I mean, because I'm really um, I I think he he basically made a career out of today's topic, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and I'm you know. I'm a big, big fan. Inner Space, classic kind of B-movie stuff, like Tiny Man injected into a full-size man, robot claw guys, like face-changing machines, all that stuff. Kevin McCarthy, uh, Kevin McCarthy's in it. Um, specifically, I wanted to talk about Matinee. Have you seen Matinee? I don't think so. It's really odd. When Matinee came out, uh, again, sort of, this is in my childhood in the 80s, like, it was on TV, and I always got the feeling that it didn't do immensely well theatrically, so it kind of came out to TV reasonably soonish after it came out. Right. It's, um, it's about a boy growing up in 1962, uh, so it's not really the 50s, but, you know, early 60s, uh, in the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And at the same time, uh, John Goodman plays a guy called Lawrence Wolsey, who's kind of like William Castle, who's exhibiting uh, kind of gimmick movies around the States. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, the kid's parents, like his dad lives on the military base. There's this kind of looming threat of nuclear war. And this guy's bringing this movie called Mant to town, which is like man and Mant. And, um, <laughs> very prominently features a film within a film where Dante has gone and actually made segments of this fictional B-movie that we then watch. So it's kind of like this movie plays with the nostalgia because it, actually angles up to kind of bad stuff as well because it's got this kid who's all excited about seeing this Mant movie and going to the cinema and, you know, it's going to be great. But at the same time, he's haunted by nightmares of nuclear annihilation to the what, to sequences that are quite similar, actually, to the Terminator 2 uh, nuclear war huh. sequences. Much less graphic, much less graphic, but it has like a dream sequence where he sees like a nuclear explosion and stuff. And it, it kind of has the dark side of that because it... it, it it's not just nostalgia. It's kind of like a negative memory of, of the fear of death and nuclear war and, you know, the separation of the family and the breakdown of the nuclear family concepts of the 1950s. Really good movie. Like, I, it, could, it could not exist as far as I know because no one ever talks about it. It's actually 1993. Sorry, it wasn't as late as I thought. Um, no one ever talks about it. Just oddly enough, uh, I was around Ollie's and Ollie just got a copy on Laserdisc uh, the other week. I was like, bloody matinee. Never see matinee. Never see matinee on TV. Never see matinee on the shelves. No one ever talks about it. It just seems to be one of those ones that I watched a bunch of times as a kid because uh, it was on TV and I guess it didn't do very well. Mm-hmm. Great movie. And if you like John Goodman doing kind of big, crazy John Goodman stuff. Who doesn't? I mean, right, exactly. Maybe John Goodman's wife. She's probably sick of it after this year. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> probably comes home or like... Uh, like yelling and stuff like that. I'm gonna do this, and I'm not gonna be stopped by anything. Just imagining like him, like, oh brother, where art thou? Like, or Barton Fink, like that big of John Goodman coming home and have to deal with that every day. 
As long as he doesn't do Red Flintstone, it's fine. Oh, no. Anyway, that's my thing. I think Joe Dante made a career out of it. I think I really like most of his movies. You know, he, I think he really made a career out of uh, today's topic, and I find it really fascinating. I think, and I think he did it more successfully than most. I mean, because Zemeckis has Back to the Future trilogy, and uh, let's say he framed Roger Rabbit, but he doesn't really go back to that well that often. I mean, Forrest Spielberg. Gump. Well, Forrest Gump, but like that's that's like a love letter to Forrest Gump. Yeah. But, um, and it's just like one of those things that like, that as things went on in the eighties, the nostalgia for like just the happiness of the fifty of fifties started to change a little bit. And then there was other like B movie concepts in the la- latter half of the eighties when there was an economic downturn in America and things became a little more cynical and there's movies like they live, which is definitely a B fifties movie made in the eighties. And that's a total lift a mirror up to what's going on right now. The thing, even though it was earlier on, is a, like I was saying, a 50s concept done again, but it's done with very cynical, not cynical intentions, but definitely like had obviously a very bleak outlook. And then probably one of your favorite movies, RoboCop, which is a definitely a 50s mm-hmm. science fiction idea just done with, I'm like, I am like Paul Verhoeven, like I am an outsider and this is how I view your culture. And that's how I'm going to make this movie. Do you think? Do you think that was what the? Do you think that's what the eighties needed at that point to have those kind of movies made? Like, all right, we had the love of, for the fifties, but now we got to show you why. Like almost through this kind of this kind of prism, why the eighties are so terrible. Well, I'm a big um, I'm a big fan of. Uh, did you ever listen to Bob Shipman movie Bob? Uh so I don't want to. He's a YouTube geek. He's a he's a he's a good guy. I'm a big fan. Big mm-hmm. fan. He just did a, a a review of the original Vacation, right? Um, which I found very interesting. And I this is I'm I'm just uh, giving credit where credit's due because I don't want to appear to have stolen the ideas from him. This is very much his uh, okay perspective. He was talking about um, the original uh, Vacation, and uh, you know the situation of his writing and how it was based on a short story. A much more cynical short story from National Lampoon magazine, which was set in the fifties and sixties. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, his his kind of theory is that uh, it's basically about the death of the American dream. In that the eighties was the time when everybody realised that the promise of the fifties was bullshit. And the promise of the fifties was that if you look after yourself, you'll be fine. You got everything you need. Just work hard. You'll have everything you want, and you'll have a family and a picket fence and a house. And there's enough for everybody. There's enough to go around if you just kind of be a little bit greedy. Um, and and vacation is saying that's bullshit. But however, Reaganism tried to bring that back, and the Reagan era made it like, oh yeah, that is bullshit. But it's your parents that fucked it up. You've got another shot. So you know you can have all that too. Just forget that your parents ruined it. We've got that for you again, and I'm going to, ha- you know, the cowboy in the White House is going to help you have that dream life and house and everything else. And then people quickly realise that was bullshit as well. Mm-hmm. So you get the second half of the eighties, um, the cynicism creeps back in, and the kind of rebellion. And they, you know, they live is is a brilliant kind of left wing think piece. You know, it's about kind of the uh, the struggle of the working man and everything, and 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 coming up against a system that that excludes you. 
Uh, and it's done in a kind of, again, like you said earlier, cynical not by motivation, cynical by outlook. Because yeah. the thing is not cynical by intention, it's cynical by outlook. And they live, though it kind of has an optimistic ending because he smashes kind of a hegemony, doesn't he? But it has an optimistic outlook, or it has a cynical outlook. This outlook being like, everybody's a greedy bastard that's out to get you. It leaves it but in our hands it, to make a decision. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, and Robocop's the same, you know, Robocop is directly critical of Reagan's kind of politics and, and the kind of general feelings of that era that you should be greedy and just look up yourself, you know, and, and, and kind of corporatism gone mad and kind of fiscal conservatism gone mad and overpriced privatization of public services and all the rest of it. Um, so like whilst you do have the kind of crazy jingoistic stuff and all the sort of Chuck Norrisy canon movies and everything, you get something like the action movies like Robocop and whatever that are prepared to you know look in on itself and 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 have a kind of a rebel voice really inside that system inside the world of money and corporate spending the, the studios there are people uh you know striking out with a kind of more cynical more rebellious voice um that are willing to take these b-movie tropes and kind of turn them on their ear again you know turn them once again back round on themselves and you know we've got to a point now that if Someone was to do, make, do like a ironic 50s B-movie, because we've got a whole wave of ironic 80s-style things going on, which we're going to discuss, I'm sure. Yeah. If you were to do an ironic 50s-style one, I don't think there would be much of the original 50s-style left, because it's, been, it's become such a cultural shorthand that no one really... Most people haven't actually... I've made it my business to watch loads of 50s B-movies. Most people haven't actually seen them, but if you asked them to describe them, they would have the shorthand ready... Uh, you know, flying saucers, giant spiders, men in grey suits with grey hats, and you know, mum and pop and Americana and blah, blah. giant ants so, eating sheriffs, giant ants eating sheriffs, and ladies with flamethrowers on their backs going into giant ant nests under cities and <laughs> the such. Like people know that as shorthand, but you know, it's been so bent out of shape by various revisitations over the years. I don't think most people really know what they were actually like. They just have kind of a notion of what they were like. Probably largely informed by the cinema of the 80s, revisiting it. You know, um, <clears throat> that was a very long, rambly bit. But, <laughs> but um, I don't think we have really a clear idea culturally of what that was, that era, anymore. Mm. We only know it because, you know, I didn't experience it secondhand. My, my parents were quite old for my age. You know, my dad's in his mid-70s. He remembers, my dad grew up in the 50s. He was there. He right. saw this stuff as came out. So he knows. Mm. But, you know, in theory, if I didn't, if I wasn't sad enough to sit around watching this crap, I wouldn't know. You right. know, I would just have this notion of what it's like. And what was it? Like, my, my dad's in his early 60s, and, like, he, he remembers going to school and, like, having those, those air raid, um, those drills of like duck under duck under your desk and that like all those kind of like propaganda newsreels of like fear the reds and stuff like that something that will be like summed up obviously years later in the iron giant beautifully and then you have a movie like night of the creeps which is what the genesis of this whole podcast came out of it's like we're gonna like saying taking 50s ideas putting through a prism in the 1980s and seeing if we can make they make a little light out of it, but it's also, it's not as like saying, it's not cynical. It doesn't have a cynical outlook like Robocop or, um, they live, but it's just one of those things that you kind of feel not like, 
at the end of it, I'm just like with the big spaceship, like the director's cut, like the big spaceship looking for the slugs. It's kind of like that despite the best efforts of these characters and the best effort, best efforts of everybody involved within the story, that it's not going to end, that we're going to be doomed regardless. And it's mm. the same thing, like almost like Terminator, even though it has an optimistic ending, it's like, we're going to show you, we're going to take this B movie science fiction idea. Yes. <clears throat> credits goes to Harlan Ellison and, and all, all those outer limits episodes that Cameron yeah. eventually credited. And it's like, we're going to take those kind of ideas and put them through the 1980s, like our obsession with technology, but we're still going to have an optimistic ending. Do you think at the end of the 80s, do you think there was more cynicism or do you think there was still optimism there when it came to these kinds of movies? I would say, okay, firstly, uh, yeah, Night of the Creeps, what a wonderful film. <laughs> really brilliant film. Um, and I do, I very much for Fred Decker because he had a bit of a shit sandwich, didn't he, after that, career-wise. But anyway, <laughs> I think one of the things, Night of the Creeps as well, like you're saying, you know, where they give you kind of the doomed ending, I think that's the flip side of people who were raised on 50s and 60s B-movies in that they always mandated a happy ending virtually all the time. So uh, the original Body Snatchers has that ridiculous little bit at the end where they go, oh, well, thank you for telling us about this. We've solved the problem. And he goes, thank God for that. And it ends. And it's just this bonky little scene that they made them film. Mm. So I think Fred Depp is going like, I'm going to do all the crazy B-movie stuff, but this isn't the 50s anymore, so I'm not going to give you a happy ending. I'm going to give you something ambiguous, you know, something to chew on. And deliberately kind of go, I don't want that. I've seen that. I was made to watch that, so I'm going to turn it on its ear. So when they do, you know, when you, like the, um, that is very, very much the thing that's happening in the Philip Kaufman body snatches. It's one of the bleakest endings ever, and it's the complete inverse of the original one. So I think Decker is deliberately kind of going like, yeah, I, I've seen that, I've had enough of that, and that's normal. I'm going to take the things I like, but I'm going to twist them. You know, I'm going to, it's that 80s prism again. And, you know, this isn't the 50s anymore. But I don't have to follow the Hayes Code. I don't have to take these demands for happy endings, etc. So I'm going to do it my way. And there's an argument to be made that you could probably write a paper that it's, whether The Thing and Night of the Creeps, like, even though The Thing was kind of precursor to it, that it's a allegory for everybody responding to AIDS at that time. I mean, then mm. I think there's enough evidence in there that you could probably get at least a solid B on that paper on that, <laughs> if you really wanted to make an argument like that. But, I mean, uh, hell, I was, able to make, I was able to get an A on a paper that's saying that slasher films, the, the, the best parts of slasher films are actually empowering to women. I was still able to get an A at the class, even though the teacher was a, an incredibly big feminist and, like, she had, she had a really strong ideals. I was able to make that argument and it was able to get an A on that paper. So it's, like, those things that you can say – if you have enough passion and if there's enough evidence there or if there's enough, I guess, ambiguity there that you can make an argument for that. Now, as the end of the 80s rolled on, cynicism started to become more prevalent. And it's when, like, second half of the 80s, I noticed a lot more anti-Vietnam War movies came out, whether it be Platoon or Full Metal Jacket or Born on the Fourth of July. It's one of those things that, like, yeah, we're, we actually kind of screwed up there and we're, we're going to show it. Uh, warts and all and it's like I don't think I don't think we've gotten over that cynicism I don't think we've gotten over cynicism from that has been left over from the 80s like there have been pockets here and there I just don't think we've ever been able to recapture that is there any movies do you think that came out after the 80s that had that sort of we're okay values 
Well, we're very, um, you know, I, I really think that's the case of... That box has been opened. You know, once you've glimpsed behind that curtain, you can't unsee what you've seen. People came back from Vietnam and, and told stories of how awful and pointless it was. You know, those people got to a point where they were making movies. We saw it and you kind of can't unsee it. And now we know that there is a time, <clears throat> you know, when it was the Allies versus the Nazis, there's a very clear idea of good and evil and motivation and stuff. But now we're more connected, we're more aware. We all know, well, sadly, that, you know, that's not how the world works. Things aren't as black and white as we once thought. And I really think there's no going back unless there's a massive kind of global paradigm shift in terms of politics and everything. We can't. And, you know, I would argue that I don't think we should. We seem to have, um, you get kind of things like, like, let's say, what, American Sniper and um, maybe Zero Dark Thirty, you know, these days that are kind of pro what we do. But even those have to have like an element of self-awareness to them. Um, and they're not kind of crazy. They're not really necessarily crazy flag-wavy movies that you would have got. It's not like an Audie Murphy film, you know. Um <laughs> It, it's it's a different, and I just I don't think there is any going back to that really. But there were simpler times of a less connected world and a less fragmented world, um, and you know don't want to get deep and depressing, but there's, I don't think there is any going back. Um, and I think we've had too many examples of knowing that we've been lied to by our governments and stuff, so we don't trust them anymore. So you know, it's kind of same as on. It's been on trend for a while now to feel like you're inside some kind of yeah, that's why conspiracy theories are popular because people like to feel that they've got the inside track on something. Which, unfortunately, conspiracy theorists in most instances they probably they probably don't. <laughs> but it's kind of an is an empowerment fantasy, you know. Um, I just happen to not believe that the world's run by interdimensional lizards, um, <laughs> which means people in comment sections then accuse me of being an interdimensional lizard, and it's a feedback loop of accusation that I just can't escape. Um, I thought my cover was, I, I was covered with that damn it I was too smart for that <laughs> my cover's gone shit <laughs> I, I think interdimensional lizards man you know I have a bicycle interdimensional lizards don't travel by bicycle <laughs> that's my that's my mitigating evidence to not being interdimensional lizards um, but yeah I don't think there's any going back to be honest um, a line was crossed too long ago and there's people like Oliver Stone and, and others that um, yeah, Oliver Stone in particular who have shown us these things and I don't think, well, I don't know, who knows? I mean, now we've got, uh, now ISIS are around, we've got, uh, everyone's happy to have a clear bad guy again. You know what I mean? Yeah. We've got our co, <laughs> with the Decepticons, Cobra, whatever, we have them now, and you can, they're more, you know, Al-Qaeda are always a bit kind of vague, but we've, we've, longed, we've longed for the days of a villain like Russians. You, we, you know, we don't have the communists anymore, so now we've got ISIS. to attack. Yeah, exactly. I don't, you know, maybe that will bring back this, uh, the kind of, uh, you know, everything's, everything's fine, we're all right, Jack, type attitude. And things like American Snipe, you know, they, they play very, very well to a conservative crowd, um, which, you know, I'm not talking politics, I'm not getting into that, that's just yeah. a fact, you know, and that's, that's fair enough as well, it's absolutely fair enough. Um, it just plays to that crowd, so I, you know... And, and people were more conservative in the kind of 40s and 50s. There were more conservative people, so that's why that stuff was more successful. And that is, you know, regardless of your politics, it's kind of a slightly embattled niche market. Um, movies tend to be a liberal medium. Um, 
and and that kind of conservative thing is is kind of a corner of it. I mean, things like Left Behind getting a remake, you know, it comes from that kind of Christian fiction kind of pocket. Right. You know, these things are happening, but they're more niche. What what was once mainstream is now kind of a small niche. And uh, there was the uh, the movie, the Atlas Shrugged movies as well, wasn't there? Um, yeah. In the last couple of years. Uh, and again, you know, very specifically, that's based on the, you know, as we know, based on fiction by a conservative theorist. Mm-hmm. Whereas there was a time where, you know, kind of moral conservatism was the mainstream. So that's what you play to. That just doesn't fly anymore. I'm just kind of waiting for the day that all of our TVs are hacked and there's one person on the end like, Cobras, attack! And then they just come back. <laughs> <laughs> Look, man, if, if we've all got, like, jet skis with miniguns on and armored pet dogs, and, you know, you know one guy who's a Native American soldier, and there's one guy who's, like, a, a fireman soldier. I love the world of G.I. Joe, I really do. Or Action Force, as it used to be called here. Uh, or we, we, have, we have to make sure one side uses red lasers, the other side uses blue lasers, so we can tell who's who on the battle. We don't want anything mixed up like that. Exactly. That could be <laughs> potentially disastrous. <laughs> um, and I remember when I saw American Sniper, and it was a packed theater. I think I saw it open a weekend. And then at the end of the movie, they show the actual funeral, like, procession of the of the sniper that the movie is based on. I'm like, I'm like, oh, really? You're going to go down this road? And I'm like, it didn't yeah. enlist an emotional response, and especially me. But like, even then, I was like, really, Clint? Really? You're really going that mountain road? Okay. Hopefully, this is only like 90 seconds long so I can get out of here. But um, that's why I'm really, really suspicious of like the next Michael Bay movie when it's like about soldiers over in the Middle East. And I'm like, the opening trailer, and then it shows like American flag. And I'm like, oh, God, no. I'm like, you're making it hard to be an American Michael Bay. It's really tough. You're giving us a bad image there. Anyway. Well, I would say, personally, you know, conservatism, it's not my politics. It's not where I, where I land. But I certainly don't begrudge anyone the right to, you know, be on that side of the fence. Right. That's how the time works. Um, at least Clint Eastwood's honest. Clint Eastwood is a Republican, and Clint Eastwood is making a movie about like a, a, a hero to conservatives. That's what that is. And if you go in expecting something else, you're an idiot. Yeah. Michael Bay, it kind of comes in underneath, and that's what I don't like. It's got kind of this mean, nasty underbelly to it, you know, because it doesn't sort of go. There is no reason for Transformers movies to be like ringing endorsements of the armed forces, which actually have input, and you know, because you know the armed forces have to veto. They only provide their help on the condition that they can veto how they appear in the movie. Mm. Man of Steel had the same. They agreed to the armed forces' help in the the armed forces get final say on how they're portrayed, which is something Joss Whedon turned around and turned down for the Avengers. Right. Um, <clears throat> you know, there's something kind of dishonest about that. I just I don't like how that's done. It's kind of like, oh, here's an American flag and soldiers are all great. And it's like, you know, if I'm going to see a Clint Eastwood movie about the sniper guy. Well, of course, yeah, it's going to be like that because that's what that is. Yeah. When I go to see a movie about uh, a millennia-long civil war between races of sentient transforming robots, <laughs> not really what I sign up for. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and I find that a bit, I find that quite insidious. Um, if you're going to straight up do this stuff and like that's what that is, fair enough. You know, that that is that's creatively and politically that is absolutely all right it's when it's kind of done you sneak it into a fucking robot movie for kids it's just weird (laughs) 
And anyway, I think we've got the topic a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. It's like every time Clint Eastwood's mentioned, I always just remember like the only impression I do of Clint Eastwood is like, yeah, obviously you got to squint the eyes and be like, somebody's talking to like, Clint, you know it's pitch black out. It's still too goddamn bright. <laughs> and he's got to be just perpetually blind because he because that's the only way he can see is because he has to squint his eyes like that. Now, moving on because well, as we're saying, like maybe people will probably object to like the opinions that we've like we talked about here. Now let's move on to movies being made today about eighties culture and why. Like we kind of like we briefly talked about that, why they missed the mark, like you were saying about things that they could do in the 80s. It's like nothing that we can't, I mean, it's something really groundbreaking to do now. Why do you think, is it a, like almost a knee-jerk response to any 80s property being remade today? Mm. Well, I think, I'll be honest, uh, Tim, um, well, so were you born in what, like 92, 93 or something? Uh, 91. 91, okay. So, it seems that a lot of the first but 80s nostalgia and a lot of the people it's marketed, marketed to were not actually around in the 80s. Right. The people that are fighting for the 80s weren't really there. And to be honest, I, I, I was six in 1989. I was six years old. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, was, I remember it. I remember what it was like and stuff. But you know what? I wasn't like hanging around having cocktails with Billy Joel. I was going to school and filling nappies with shit. I wasn't like going to the cinema. Right. So for me, even for me, who was there for heart, like, I was born in 1983. Even for me to sort of go, like, oh, I'm so nostalgic for the 80s. I'm not really. I'm nostalgic for the 80s that was presented to me on TV in the 90s. Right. Like Ollie, uh, Ollie's two years older than me, so he's he was around since nineteen eighty one, and again he was a kid at the end. And I do remember, I remember Transformers, I remember GI Joe. I watched those things when I remember like Ninja Turtles came out. In fact, I listened to that um, podcast you did with Ollie, right. and you asked him what movie he saw first in the cinema, mm-hmm. and he said Ninja Turtles with his dad. That's exactly the same for me, <gasps> and I think in the yeah, same cinema as well, probably, in Cambridge. Not that we knew each other then. But, yeah, that was the first movie I saw in the cinema with my dad. It's an intertitles movie. <laughs> but it's mostly marketed to kids that grew up in... Like, fucking kids who were born in, like, 1994 that pined, pined for the 80s but weren't there and, like, wank off about Back to the Future. And, it was, you know, they didn't see it until 2007 or whatever. Mm. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the 80s were having fed back to us it's kind of this hyper-real, fictionalized version of the 80s. It's kind of been repackaged for a new audience. I mean, to be honest, in this country, the 80s was awful. There were riots, there was poverty, there was Thatcherism, there was war. There was, you know, it, I was going to ask about that. I was going to ask like, uh, about Thatcher and all the, the problems that happened there, but I was like, ah! This is dark enough as it is. I think I'm going to leave it. Yeah, yeah. Keep it light. Keep it light. Most of it was, you know, homelessness and people not having jobs and poverty and desperation. It wasn't silly haircuts, brightly colored T-shirts, you know, fucking slap bands and swatch watches. It's what they feed back to, and it's kind of like you know, all the music and stuff is repackaged. They do these 80s nights, you go to an 80s night, and it's full of 19-year-olds. And it's like, and I do kind of wonder if that's because 
the nineties was kind of crap, wasn't it? <laughs> like, yeah. The nineties. It's having its day now. The 90s nostalgia period is trying its best to take off, but it just can't quite compete with the 80s nostalgia period. And the 90s nostalgia period, it now seems, is being catered to kids who were born in the 2000s. Yeah. It's a potential delay. So it's kind of like now we're getting like, hey, kids, remember NSYNC? And it's like, you don't because you weren't born, but here, buy the CD. (laughs) So when a lot of the um, kind of you know, butt hurts, as you'd say in the States, about, about things being remade arises. Mm-hmm. Um, often the people that are kind of having those feelings weren't even there the first time round. You know, they say, oh, I can't believe they're remaking it. And it's like, well, you didn't watch it until 1998. Mm-hmm. You know, you weren't born till 1992. And it's not that you don't have a right, but you can't really pretend that you lived it and then complain. I mean, because this new version, for better or for worse, is... As far as you're concerned, it's just as old as the other one. Mm. Um, I find it very perplexing. I think I think it's odd. I mean, certain things. I don't know if you heard our review of the remake of RoboCop. I but I, I, I was like I like I didn't watch it because I'm like oh it's just going to be so I didn't I expected it to be so hate filled that I'm just like I don't want to. I don't want to subject myself to that, but I, I assume... No, you, you made a good shout. I, re- I didn't mean to, but I completely lost my shit. <laughs> and this is, you know, this is where I proved myself to be a hypocrite because the Robocop came out, what, 87? And yeah. I'd have been like four. And I didn't watch it probably... I did watch Robocop way too young, by the way. I watched Robocop when I was about six or seven. So I watched it in about 1990. Right. Um, when my parents went around, which is very naughty of me. Mm-hmm. But I didn't go and sit in the cinema and have a beer afterwards. I was four years old. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, I... kind of questionable. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, Terminator, the first Terminator, that was my favourite movie growing up, Latin Robocop. Again, I watched Terminator when I was probably about seven, but I shouldn't have. That came out um, when I was six months old. And I go on about it all the time. I love it. I adore it. We've covered loads of movies today, you know, where I wasn't born and stuff but that's one of my favourite movies but I view those as individual things what I don't do is kind of just go oh that's from the 80s ergo I like it right you know I think things like I'm not saying they're bad movies but things like Labyrinth and The Dark Crystal and I don't know Scarface and whatever people who are like 19 go oh yeah the 80s is cool I'm going to go into HMV or you know and just buy a wedge in in an 80s box set Right. Well, there's an 80s, there's an 80s uh, season on TV, so I'm going to watch all these 80s movies because they're 80s. I'm just going to like them because they're 80s. Right. And they don't tend to take them to my case. And then they kind of go, I can't believe they're remaking it. And it's like, what do you know? You only saw it last year. <laughs> no, you know, and nothing wrong with that because you should defend the things you love. But I, I just think all of these waves of, of nostalgia aren't really aimed at the people who lived them. I mean, there's a big wave of 90s nostalgia, and the 90s I have far more claim on because, you know, I became a teenager in the 90s, and I genuinely grew up, and I was, you know, running around, like, meeting girls, doing all my first stuff, like, going to see movies, going on holiday. I remember that, but I also remember that 90s pop culture was crap. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? I'm not going to climb over myself to get a signed copy of Austin Powers 2. No one gives a shit. <laughs> oh, Wild West. You know what I mean? Um... So, yeah, I, I find it a bit false, to be honest. Um, there's some nice things done in the, names, in the name of kind of 80s nostalgia. I found Kung Fury to be very funny. Um, I think certain things that try to imitate that style hit and miss. 
Yeah. Uh, you've had a big wave of kind of, I get a bit annoyed with these fake 80s grindhouse things because I think, tying into what I've just said, they appeal or they are designed around an 80s that never existed. Mm-hmm. So like, a, like the Expendables or something like that. Like the yeah, the Expendables did not fit its remit. It claims to be this kind of 80s throwback and it isn't one. The movies of the 80s weren't like that. They notionally were. If you were to ask someone born in 1995 what an 80s movie looked like, they would describe The Expendables. And it seems a little disingenuous on their part for like making it like that. Yeah, they should know better. They were bloody there. Sylvester yeah. Stallone. Same thing. He was there. He did that. They should know better. And- I, I, yeah, that's what frustrates me with a lot of it. I think when it's done well, I think it's really good because, you know, Kung Fury was so dialed up that it was never ever intended to be taken as a genuine kind of you know it's supposed to be silly and I can I'm fine with that I found that Hobo with a Shotgun whilst I didn't like it that much it really felt like a kind of dirty VHS rental from the 80s it did feel quite genuine it felt lived in Mm -hmm. and for that reason and to be like a genuine 80s B-movie it was quite boring in parts it was a bit slow. It looked a bit ugly because that's what big movies are like. The reality of these things is kind of grindhouse stuff. It's normally not very well made. I mean, they're great in everything and they have their thing, but don't be fooled into thinking that everything in the eighties was like this wall to wall candy colored thrill ride. A lot of it was a like, quite dull and sloppily made mm-hmm. and not fun. Right. Um, um, you know, we've got this idea about it now, which I don't think, I think it's false. It's funny, Matt, like going back to what you're saying about Ninja Turtles, I'm like, so did Cambridge only get one movie for a couple of months and it just happened that you and Oliver had a chance to see it there. I just find that so, kind of funny. It's just a huge deal because, like, Ninja Turtles, the cartoon came out. Everybody went apeshit for it. Like, it was mental. Like, like I think they called it, like, Turtle Mania. Yeah. Like, you know, essentially you had to have the toys. So when the movie came out, I'm pretty certain, like, every kid and their dad went to see that movie. Mm-hmm. Like, back in the day, there used to only be one cinema. There was, like, one two-screen cinema in town. Right. Um, you know, when was that? 89 or 90 or something? 90. Um, these days, what, 1990? I'm pretty sure it was 1990 when it was released. Okay. These days we've got like kind of big multiplexes here. We've got a couple of like nine screen cinemas and an art cinema. Back in the day, there was one cinema with two screens, and you would go, and um, you would have to. Keep, what, what would happen was you'd drive down with your parents, and they would have to queue around the block. There was nowhere to wait inside. You had to queue around the street. Mm. Um, but like when I remember when I went to see Ninja Turtles the first time, there was a massive queue, and my dad was like, "We can't go. There's too many people. Go home and then try again another day. Mm. Just go in." They would queue around the block because every kid in town wanted to see it, and there's only two screens in the whole of the, in the whole of the city. Right. So, so it was huge. It was so huge because um, you know I kind of missed out on Transformers a bit because I was you know that came a little bit before I was old enough to fully understand what was going on. That was still around. I was there when Turtles and Ghostbusters hit as well because Ghostbusters was such a big deal with the cartoon show. So when Ghostbusters two came out, the same situation like massive queues around the block. Like you know, there's only two cinemas in the city. Only two screens in the city, sorry, and like every kid from school had to go. Every kid from every school was getting taken with their parents. So that one cinema would have a queue outside half a mile down the road or whatever mm-hmm. for a month for people going to see that movie. Um, so um, 
that's just a question of statistics that Ollie and I just happened to both go at the same time. Um, but it's funny, like you're saying about like people my age or younger being obsessed like with culture, whether it be '80s or earlier than that, and. And it's funny because I'm just like, while you're saying that, I'm like, I'm thinking about all the t-shirts that I wear on the regular. I'm like, that's a movie poster. That's a movie poster. That's a movie poster. I'm like, and they all came out between 1978 and 1989. And I'm like, huh. Well then. And then, but like I'm, you're saying. Yeah, I don't want to be, you have every right to do that, Tim. Yeah. I don't want to come off as a dick. Please carry on. You have every right to do that. It's totally a cool thing. I'll <laughs> um, just, just send you a picture <laughs> of all my posters and t-shirts that are big pile on fire. I'm like. This is what you made me do. I hope you feel happy now. How much you dressed like Luke Skywalker, Burn Invader? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, so Tim, did you come to? Uh, um, you came to a piece? Yeah, with who? With George Lucas, Simon Pegg, putting all the Star Wars stuff being set on fire in space. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, uh, that's probably my favorite episode of Space when he ends up getting fired from the comic book store because he doesn't sell the kid the Jar Jar figure. Um, Jar Jar big makes the Ewoks look like fucking shaft. <laughs> like he had to fire you. Whew. <laughs> oh, I thought you were actually going to fire me. <laughs> Runs away. <laughs> 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 um, and it's funny because a lot of people because apparently I, I look like Simon Pegg a little bit, and I end up going as Sean of Sean the Dead. And then when I fought, started watching Space and find out his character's name is Tim, and I'm like, of course it is, because life is like that sometimes. Um, but it's, That's so weird, because I get told I look like Simon Pegg quite a lot, and I also have done the Sean of the Dead Halloween dress-up. Well then, I think... Like, if I we're... didn't look Tim, but... Um... <laughs> If we ever meet up or something like that, we're just like have to dress as Simon Pegg's from his movies. Pegg's. Uh, <laughs> I'll 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 be willing to dress up as him from the World's End because I know your your feelings were not you weren't so hot on that movie. Bit lukewarm, bit lukewarm, yeah. And I've you know I've I've really put the effort into growing a beard, so I need to do the uh, Sean Goatee properly. <laughs> <laughs> need to get the mileage out of my beard, man. I've, I've worked really hard on it. <laughs> And, um, what was it like, like you were saying about like wearing like those kind of t-shirts and stuff like that. And then end up like people like you're saying, like question, like, Oh, you really like that movie? And I'm like, yeah. And it's not because I just like it. Like, cause it's eighties or something like that. It's because I'm, I like, I like cinema, whether it be from the silent era to now, like it's movies in each decade that I can really get behind and stuff like that. And it's like, it's like those kind of criticisms. I have to defend myself a little bit. Not saying that like hear or anything like that, but there are people who had that kind of like, oh, you just like it because of the eighties. I'm like, no, because I'm a huge Carpenter fan. That's why I have like four of his movies on in t-shirt form and stuff like that, and I'll wear them on the regular. Now, it's a good movie. You know, it's a movie you love. That's it. Yeah. And sidebar, the story you told. Um, during the Big Trouble in Little China commentary about the flight having to be turned around. I'm pretty sure it was either, it was either you or Duncan that told that story about somebody blew up the bathroom and had to be told it had to be turned yeah, around. Generally, Tim, if it's a story about poo, it was probably me that told it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was listening to that the first time at work, and it's on. I'm on break and stuff like that, and so I'm outside because my the warehouse doesn't have any windows. So I'm like, I need to get some sunlight during the day, and and I'm just cracking up listening to the story you told. And people are looking at me like, why the hell is he really? 
being pleased with himself laughing at something and I have my headphones in so nobody else is hearing it so I just look like a guy standing off by himself just laughing to himself like looking really maniacally so um, <laughs> you're welcome sir <laughs> it was well deserved I, I didn't care I, I didn't care about the looks and stuff like that and that's the way it was worth it now there's two movies I thought of like of saying like things being done in the 80s that have seemed kind of false or stuff like that Two movies I thought were representative of late 70s to early 80s culture being done again. One is, you could argue, Guardians of the Galaxy and Mad Max Fury Road. One of them being a continuation of an 80s property, but done right. Not just aping off the nostalgia of it, but like actually not just executing, but elevating it. Do you feel the same way? Yeah, absolutely. No, those are um, really excellent picks as well, because they don't... You know, neither Guardians of the Galaxy nor Mad Max kind of went like, oh, look, here's someone with a perm. There's someone on roller skates. Oh, look, Billy Joel. Like, they didn't need to. They felt lived in. They felt genuine. Like, James Gunn did the 70s and 80s thing because he didn't have to signpost that. Like, apart from the musical choices, it just has that feel. It's lived in because he knows what it's like. Mad Max, again, it's just another Mad Max movie. It's not insanely gory it's not dialed up it's not crazy i mean it is amazing and it's super it's really hyper mm-hmm. but it feels lifting it feels real it's not kind of like oh remember the 80s everyone it's just that no here's another mad max film this is what mad max films are like but now we have more money yeah it's not a kind of cartoonish reproduction of the 80s so it feels genuine I, one film okay i've got real issues with the watchman film i mean i can't stand it and that's a whole podcast on its own but my God, do they go out of their ways to go, remember the 80s, guys? Like, they might as well have someone walk in in a T-shirt that says, like, holy shit, it's the 80s. Like, <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Like, the musical choices and the, the just sort of vision stuff, it's like, we get it. It's the fucking 80s, man. Like, understand. Like, you could have just put a, a subtitle with the year up. You don't have to show someone walking past in a fucking, you know, vanilla ice T-shirt every five seconds or whatever. Um... You know, though I must say, because again, you know, I really want to clarify that I'm not saying if you didn't live at the time, you can't like the things. Right. I'm just saying, yeah, I'm just saying, you know, like you very eloquently described, you know, you like that. I like Robocop because it's a good movie. I would, you like these, you know, thing or whatever, because they are good films. I get frustrated with people liking them just because they're from the 80s, you know. Because you get people having like parties where they'll sit around in box socks with dealy boppers and watch Back to the Future. And it's just like, what are you doing? What, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> it's just so dumb. Um, yeah, so something like Guardians and, and Mad Max, they're really kind of, they feel, again, I keep saying lived in, they feel lived in, they feel genuine, they didn't need to signpost that fact, it's just there. Um, I just get very frustrated with this kind of pining for a, pining for a, a half-remembered version of an era that frankly didn't exist and certainly wasn't as candy-coloured and nice as everyone likes to make out. There's actually quite an unpleasant time to be around. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I don't want to make it sound as if I'm saying, you need to earn, you need to have been unemployed and lived on the streets in 1981 if you're allowed to watch Mac and Me. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no one's saying that. I, I just sort of think, um, I think it p- pays into or plays into, rather, a kind of broader uh, glossing over of what was actually quite an unpleasant time to be around, frankly. Right. Um, 
And yeah, I just wonder if it's a marketing exercise and all the rest of it. So I don't know. But then, of course, we're all, we're both confronted with hipsters, like we've been saying, hipsters who are just obsessed for the sake of it. Like I have a few people I know, they're just like, it was so much better then, and like it's terrible now. And I'm like, all right, why? And it's like, but uh, because it was, because it was, is not a, a valid excuse, a valid uh, explanation. I want a reason behind it. And I'm like, that's, I guess it's just like, how many papers I've written on movies. I'm like, oh, you can't do it because just because you got to have a reason behind it. So that's why I come at that kind of point of view. Like, all right, I need to have a, a evidence to back this up, not just simply because. And it's just mm. like one of those things, like what you're saying, like they're trying to re- resurrect the 90s. They may do a new version of the Rugrats and stuff like that. And like if Nickelodeon mm. is doing may re- reboot their cartoons from the 90s. And it's like, uh, it doesn't seem really genuine. That's, that is just a marketing ploy just to bite off a little bit of nostalgia that some, some people that, of our age want to do. That's because someone at Nickelodeon has been going on BuzzFeed and Tumblr every day for the last couple of years and reading articles with names like Top 10 Times Tommy Owned It in Rugrats <laughs> and seeing that all these kind of, yeah... What, you know, fair play to all these kind of 19-year-olds and stuff who were in that demographic and now nostalgic for it. So they've got a, a rich vein in which to tap, you know. Because um, I, I, it's kind of a... Did you, do, did you do Pokemon, Tim, when you were a kid? Were you into that? I was into the handheld games. I, I collected the cards, but I didn't actually have the dueling of them and stuff like that. Or really, like, I collected maybe two packs, and I'm like, this is really... I don't, I'm not really behind this. I'm just going to play with my Game Boy. But I was around people who were so engrossed in it. Well, that's the one, because you're, you're about two years younger than my younger brother. He's, uh, he's about 26. Mm-hmm. Um, he was really, really into Pokemon, massively. When Pokemon came around, I was probably about 18, so I always felt I kind of missed that boat a bit. It was a bit young for me, and I'm sure if I had been younger, I would have liked it. So I always associated Pokemon with little kids. You know, my brother was probably about 10, I suppose, when, or 12 when that was happening. Mm-hmm. So we used to buy him Pokemon stuff and everything. And I found it a really worrying moment when I read a thing on the internet about how uh, Pokemon has had a massive comeback among undergraduates, so university students. Yeah. Who are about 20, 21 years old. And I was like holy shit, of course it has, because those were the 12-year-olds that I knew in 2001. Right. They're grown up. So now there was apparently, in this country, there was a big upswing in people buying Pokemon stuff again, because it just kind of, like, these kids kind of forgot about it a bit, and now they're into it. So now we've got all these people that are, like, you know, account managers at banks and working in aerospace and got all these high-flying jobs that have, like, a Game Boy Pocket. <laughs> that they whip out my Pokemon on, which fries my brain. It makes me feel so cold. Like, that's that thing. The thing I was too old to be into has now had an ironic reappraisal. <laughs> that means you're old. That's a sign of adulthood. Like, it's come back on itself. Um, um, it was funny because, like, I remember one time I was coming back to my dorm while I was up at school. I, can't, I, I walked out of the stair- stairwell and I looked into the lounge and, like, People playing with Magic the Gathering and Pokemon cards. And I'm just like, look at these losers. And I'm just like, why would you do this? And then I marathon Doctor Who afterwards. And then I realized, huh. Yes. 
Fantastic. Oh, the irony was not lost to me there. I love that. I, I just sort of be like, look at those losers. I'm going home to advertise my comics. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the, the, speaking of which, you know, I'm a very, um, I'm a big, big Doctor Who fan, and that is something that, um, you know, that started before I was born. However, when I was a little kid, um, I used to watch Sylvester McCoy. Uh, I used to watch Sylvester McCoy episodes when they were new. Mm-hmm. Because um, you know, I, I in the, at the end of Old Who, I used to watch that, and I was really little, um, and that spanned such a long gap before it went away that I was kind of at the right age when, in two thousand five, it came back. I was like, I loved Doctor Who when I was a kid. I'm really up for more Doctor Who. You know, that's something I remember fondly from my childhood. We used to always get, obviously, been in the UK, we used to get repeats of all the Doctors. So you'd have a new episode on Saturday night with Sylvester McCoy, but then you'd have like John Pertwee and Tom Baker and stuff on in the week, just at tea time. So we knew all the other ones. And that played into, you know, once that was me. I, I got targeted by that marketing of like, here's that thing you remember. Would you like some more? Me going, yes. And now we're 10 seasons in, well, nine seasons in, because uh, uh, series nine is starting in two weeks, which I'm very excited about. No, next Saturday, I think. It's next it's Saturday, that's what I was going to say. Oh, I'm really excited. That's another topic, but I'm very excited. The topic is coming back. It's funny because I'm rewatching this past season on Netflix now, and I'm just like, I'm like, Capaldi, he's he's a great doctor, and I feel like some of the early episodes of his season, like writing-wise, is not up to snuff, but that's a whole other topic right there of talking about. Mm-hmm. As much as I love Moffat writing, and I think his heart lies in Sherlock and not Doctor Who anymore, and I just feel like, I just feel like, I don't know, maybe bring back Russell T. Davies? I don't know. Or maybe have somebody, like, not have Moffat write all the big main episodes, like, have another writer do it, or make them two-parters and let these stories grow a little bit, because I feel like some of the times, like, all right, we choose characters, conflict, they're dead, because they're red shirts, and the Doctor starts to learn a little more of a lesson that's the big overarching story of that season, but... I think Moffat needs to go. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I really, really liked his early seasons, and I really liked what he wrote under Davis, and I thought he was an excellent choice for showrunner. But I think he stuck around about two seasons too many, frankly. And uh, I think, unfortunately, poor old Capaldi has not been served well by kind of uh, his shoddy writing. His Capaldi's amazing. I think he's a better writer behind him. Which I agree with. I'm just like, he brings so much to it, and then and there were so many people that I'm around with that like, the Doctor can't be old, and I'm just like, oh, God. Dude, what? No, no, what are you talking about? The Doctor exactly, yeah, I hate that. I really hate that with Doctor Who. It's kind of like, the Doctor can't be old. The Doctor exactly, mostly, usually was old. Shut the fuck up. What are you talking about? And, and it's not like I wasn't like, I didn't like grow up with like classic Doctor Who. It was just like, I was, the first doc, my first Doctor was Christopher Eccleston, and I watched all the way up until then, and I would, I would go back and I'd watch like whatever remaining episodes there were of the first and second doctor before the all like the majority of them being destroyed. And I'm just like, it's like, he can't, he has to be a heartthrob. And I'm just like, you, you're what's wrong with nostalgia right now. But yeah, we're getting it, way exactly, exactly. You have no idea. That's the thing. Like, Oh, Dr. Who should be this Dr. Who should be that. Yeah. Cause you think Dr. Who started in 2005. That's mm-hmm. why you think Dr. Who should be a heartthrob. You know, you're kind of, you, you're, you're just casually engaging with this. Um, and dude, man, you know, there's going to be, there'll probably be an ironic reappraisal of Christopher Eccleston because it was 10 years ago, you know what I mean? It'll be sort of like, that'll come up. Chris Eccleston's great, by the way. I saying. know. And if we're, if, um, if we, sorry. Uh, it feels like I'm 
pissed at him. He didn't. He didn't. I, I understand his reasons. Not being involved with the 50th anniversary, I feel like with the with that kind of legacy, I feel like he should have gotten over his feelings towards it and was in it. So we didn't have the contrivance of John Hurt's the War Doctor because the, mm. the War Doctor wouldn't have been created if Eccleston came back. Yeah, exactly. No, not at all. And the War Doctor was great, but it's really frustrating to not have him there. It would have been a really nice kind of summation of the relaunched series. But um, John Pertwee is my man, by the way. He was always my favorite as a kid. And I feel like Sean Pertwee should play his father on, should have like an uh, episode where the two Tardises collide and stuff like that and have Sean Pertwee play his dad because it would have been perfect because yeah. he did that costume. Did you, think, you saw him dressed up as him as Halloween, right? Yeah. And that it, is amazing. So good. I'd be so up for that. As long as like he has some cry chops and he, he rolls somebody over his shoulder, I'll be happy. <laughs> If he, uh, if he reverses the polarity of the neutron flow, I'll be a very happy man. <laughs> and and what, oh, what was the name of the yellow car that he had instead of the TARDIS? Be- Bessie. Be- yeah, and Bessie would show up and be like, all right, it's perfect. <laughs> so down for that. <laughs> anyway, now we're just getting lost. Anyway, in anyway you've got to, yeah, lost on Doctor Who. <laughs> all right, final, t- final thoughts. Now, should we allow ourselves to be caught up in it or should we just be simply making our own stories have our like we were saying have our influences but have them not be so overt or just like let's try and make something completely new that will live on as part of this time well i think going back to um what we touched on at the beginning of the podcast you know gremlins is a high concept kind of horror romp first and a throwback second back to the future it works very plainly on nostalgia, of course. However, the the through line in the plot would work if he traveled back in time to kind of any era. Mm-hmm. You know, the plot still works. It doesn't have to be the 50s spirits work. That just happens to be the, uh, the, the thing on which it chooses to hang. You know, it is, it's a sci-fi family comedy first and a nostalgia piece kind of second. You know, if you're doing this nostalgia-heavy stuff, that's fine. But it needs to feel genuine. You know, I would say, you know, like Guardians, Mad Max, <clears throat> it needs to feel lived in and genuine. And it's fine that these things get made. If you don't want to watch them, don't watch them. And I do a whole lot of don't want to watch in these days. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, I, I, yeah, it's just the kind of falseness of it. I think when it's done well, it's done well. And I think, really, story should come first. If you've got like an idea for some kind of wacky, crazy, 80s ironic nostalgia thing, that's great, but just make sure it's got a good plot and good, interesting characters. And you know, Kung Fury was fun. It was only 30 minutes. It's not a true film. It's got no story and no characters, really. No. It's just all a kind of 80s-themed light show. Mm. And if that was, had like, better writing, it would have been absolutely superb. But um, it's just like the saying, like, just not just execute, elevate, not just like to say merely, yeah, not just like, all right, we're going to do this. No, like, let's think about this for a couple minutes more and elevate it. Like one idea, like I was bored in a class because was I had the same teacher for two classes. And I'm just like, if I was going to do a slasher, how would I do it? And I'm like. Like, I came up with an idea of, like, have it set in the 80s, but, like, how it would have done differently. And I'm like, all right, if I want to do a different slasher, I'm like, well, have it vampires, not have it as regular killer. Like, take, acknowledge the tropes in yourself, 
but do it differently, like in your own execution of it. Mm. Oh, like... did you see? Sorry. Go on. Did you see the movie The Guest? Yes. Look at that. It's not set in the 80s. It has all the trappings of those things, slasher movies, bit of science fiction. It's very clearly a homage to John Carpenter. Mm -hmm. It has a nice kind of like 80s style soundtrack, but not really 80s songs. It's got kind of synthy, kind of ambient stuff. Right. It has all these things, and it has its own interesting characters and plot. And it's a massive 80s throwback, but it's an 80s throwback second. Yeah. It's the window dressing. And it enriches the experience, and it's, it's vital to the experience, and it's all very cohesive. But it has its own thing, and it's just beautifully atmospheric when executed and acted. Uh, but it is not a nostalgia piece first. I mean, it's only a nostalgia piece if you're equipped with the kind of syntax of such things. If you know, if you know that that's the John Carpenter font, if you know that John Carpenter used that kind of music, if you know that kind of Harold Faltermeyer cue, if you know the, the cinematoscope look, that's what tell you know that's kind of a it's a bonus. It doesn't depend on that. It's just that that same script in lesser hands would just be a shitty movie. But it that's an excellent example. I, you know, I think it's probably my favourite example. You know, it's a throwback second. It's just a good movie on its own terms first. Um, it's not, you know, ironic or whatever else. It was like you mentioned something. You saying that it was that it was in Cinemascope, I, and I, I wrote this down. And I totally forgot to mention a lot of the movies during the eighties, with the exception of like Ooh. Carpenter, were not shot Cinemascope. They were shot one eighty five, and I feel like with that, because I like both Cinemascope and the Taller Frame for different reasons. I'm like I can't really see Jaws in the Taller Frame, nor can I really imagine like E.T. being in CinemaScope and stuff like that, but it's like, with the taller scope and the taller frame, it seems like it's more inviting. You can at least get a little more involved with it. You don't seem like, oh, you don't seem distracted with it. You know, it's, And it seems like more personal for actors. For those early nostalgia movies, it worked for that. And a lot of the remakes say, like, oh, we have the opportunity to shoot scope and it can be done cheaply. And I'm like, well, of course let's do that. Why wouldn't we? Uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. We're going to do it. Like RoboCop. I'm like, it shouldn't be in scope. I'm sorry. No, it has no reason to be. I mean, the guest did that because it's specifically invoking Carpenter. Yeah. You know, that's why I did it. Robocop doesn't need it. Robocop has this kind of crazy handheld sort of uh, intimacy. It's uh, Jos Vacano, I think, isn't it? The, uh, the cinematographer, Dutch guy. Yeah. Um, yeah, it doesn't need it. It doesn't need it. None of the sets, none of the air. It, it needs to feel a bit. It doesn't need that spectacle. Um Whereas Carpenter's stuff does, he's all into kind of the long takes and the wide angles and all the rest of it. It's like you can't imagine yeah. Halloween not being in CinemaScope because <laughs> it's like that's part of that story and you're, you're so married to that. It's kind of like if you saw Michael Myers walking down with the taller frame, I think that's why some of the later Halloween sequels didn't really work because for budgetary concerns, they didn't shoot it in CinemaScope. Yeah, exactly. And it seems like... It's something that the average moviegoer doesn't notice, but they do, you know, they, and to quote Mr. Blinkett from Red Letter Media, you know, they don't notice, but their brain notices. You know, you know something's different, but if you don't really know formats, you're not going to go like, oh, well, that's in 185, because you don't, you know, the average kind of moviegoer doesn't really know that kind of stuff. But you do know something's off, something's not quite the same as before, even if you can't put your finger on it. Right. 
But um, anyway, for those who are listening right now, I hope you really enjoyed this podcast. I hope it was informative and we've gone through several different emotions that could probably happen with a podcast, whether it be we're having, we're, we're, we're really loving it, then we're like, all right, well, how the things the world is, but there is still hope. We ended on a good note, I, at least I think so. Yeah. No, it's all positive. You've got to touch on the dark stuff sometimes. I'm sorry that I do, I ramble a lot. If you listen to Ollie's podcast, you'll know that I do sort of go off on one. Um, just be glad that you're not my friend and you don't see me every day that I come into your life and speak for non-stop 10 minutes then fuck off again <laughs> <laughs> did, did he have his ramble? yes alright we, we should be good for the day we paid our penance we don't have to deal with them for the rest of the day now <laughs> alright for those who are listening to Anything Goes and you can follow Richard on Stuff that Oliver Harper does on his YouTube page under the same name, as well as the Let's Plays that they've done. Um, and you can follow this podcast, obviously, on SoundCloud. SoundCloud, you can follow me on Twitter if you want, on Timothy Rooney too. Richard, if they, if they, if you want people to follow you, where can they follow you? You can find me on Twitter. It's it's underscore Jackson Time with no apostrophe. It's underscore Jackson Time. Uh, that's the only thing that I kind of officially engage on, really. I'm, I'm on the YouTube comments as well on, on Ollie's videos. So if there's anything on YouTube, you want to say hi to me on there, on Oliver Harper's channel, I'll usually go and say something in one of the videos I'm in, and I'll, I'll usually reply. Um, but hit me 